I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome everyone to episode 33 of True Blue True Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Hi, good. I've quit eating sushi on a Wednesday for our No Risk Wednesdays. Yes. So I'm feeling pretty good, better than normal maybe. Yeah, and you've replaced it with cupcakes. Thank you for the gift. I did. I bought us Christmas cupcakes nice and early. And you were quite critical of the way I consumed mine, however. so. Well, yeah, eating, trying to eat an entire cupcake in one mouthful is interesting. It didn't make it any less delicious. <laughs> it was great. good. Yeah. Uh, some more Patreon shout-outs this week, Chloe. Yes, thank you and welcome to Kel Price, Anna Gioni, Jackie Crouch, Deborah Howell, Nicola Kinder, Katie, Robert Wilson, Laura, Ramez Habib and Jess Agnew. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. Today we're talking about the disappearance of Sarah McDermott. We spoke briefly about this case towards the end of the Bandali Debs episode a couple of weeks ago. And we said then we wouldn't delve into it too much then because we wanted to do a full episode on it at some point. Now felt like the right time. Although it's not exactly a a part three connecting to the past two episodes, there's a link there. So we thought now would be the best time to talk about it and the fact that next year will mark the 30th anniversary of Sarah's disappearance. And it's a tragic story, this one, a very mysterious one, with many possibilities. And it all started in the southeastern suburb of Seaford at Cannanook Railway Station on the Frankston train line between Seaford and Frankston in the cold winter of 1990. Eleventh of July, 1990, Hananook train station, Seaford, Victoria. At 10:20 p.m., Maria Babakala got off the train and made her way off the platform, crossing the overpass to head out of the station. As the clacking of the train departing the station, headed for Frankston, echoed in the night sky, 
Things again fell silent and she shuffled towards her destination. But that silence was soon disturbed by the sound of a firm female voice in the distance. Give my car keys back and stop fooling around, the woman said. Maria looked out across the overpass bridge, but it was very dark and her view of the car park below was obscured by bush. She continued on, hesitantly, wondering what might have happened in the darkness below. Then she heard a scream. It was loud, piercing, then suddenly cut off after no more than a second or two. Maria stopped again and looked everywhere around her, the car park, the station, the railway line, but she couldn't see anyone. Maria turned back and kept walking, unsure of what she'd heard. The echo of the woman's scream faded into the silence of night, just like the clacking of the train. Sarah McDermott was 23 years old in July of 1990. She was a vibrant, fun and high-spirited Scottish-Australian woman who'd migrated here with her family a few years earlier. Sarah was very family-oriented. The McDermott's were a tight-knit crew and she loved fiddle music, the tin whistle and the recorder. She was described as mischievous on occasion, something that came from her mother. She was also very witty, a trait she got from her father. Along with her love of music, she would often attend concerts, sometimes with her brother Al, with whom she was very close. But Sarah was also into fashion and clothing, like many people in their early 20s and indeed beyond that. It's a time in life where your clothing forms part of your identity. Sarah was into that, and again, she didn't do this selfishly. She'd go shopping with friends and buy others gifts also. Her brother recalled her buying him a jacket one time. Sarah embraced her Scottish heritage And she also loved the Australian way of life, the climate here, the wildlife, and of course, the sporting culture. And one sport she loved dearly was tennis. Sarah did have a heart condition, it was said. I'm not sure on the details of that or how it may or may not have impacted her daily life. Whatever the case, it didn't stop her from living a full work and personal life. She worked for an insurance company in Collins Street in Melbourne's CBD, And quite often after she'd finished work, Sarah would enjoy a game of tennis with friends thereafter. On the 11th of July 1990, Sarah left her family home in Sky Road, Frankston at around 20 past 7 in the morning. She caught the train from Cannanook's train station at 7.35 and headed to Melbourne. Sarah was wearing a grey suit, a backpack which had her tennis clothes inside. She had her Walkman, tennis racket and $60 in cash. Sarah travelled into work at the insurance company and worked a normal day like any other. Before 5pm rolled around and she left Collins Street with her friends Gavin Thorne, Diana Wright-Smith and Mike Garrard. The foursome went together in Garrard's car to the National Tennis Centre in Melbourne Park. They arrived there just before 5.30pm. They played a few sets of tennis, a few serves and volleys, a bit of baseline action then retired to the lounge and had a few well-earned drinks. Gavin, Sarah and Diana walked to Richmond Station nearby thereafter. Mike drove his car home and the three friends caught the train to Caulfield at around 20 past nine before switching at Caulfield to the Frankston train at 9.39. They boarded carriage number three as this was the only one with lights on. 
At quarter past 10, Gavin and Diana got off the train at Bond Beach, which is just one stop before Cannonook, I believe, and they bid farewell to Sarah, expecting to see her the following morning on the reverse trip when they all headed into work for another day at the office. I think they may have offered Sarah a lift home, however, this wasn't an uncommon occurrence for the group to get this later 10 past 9 train after a hit of tennis. I understand they'd done this many times and Cannonook was just a few short minutes after Bond Beach and Sarah was parked there so no one probably thought twice about it. Five minutes later at 10.20pm, Sarah got off the train at Cannonook and was seen thereafter by three different witnesses walking towards the car park. This car park at Cannonook back at this time was very poorly lit. It stretched a fair way back from the lights of the station and it was a treed area in the surrounds so it was very dark at this time of night. Sarah's red Honda Civic was parked towards the back end of the car park. She was last seen walking in this direction, attired in her sports gear, carrying her backpack and tennis racket. This was around the time that witness Maria Babacala heard the commotion from the dark car park that we described in the introduction. Maria had been on the same train as Sarah, but she didn't know this was Sarah screaming at the time, nor do we, but we can safely assume that because... Sarah disappeared after this point, and she hasn't been seen again since. As we said in the intro, Maria described hearing a female voice say firmly, but not yelling, give me my car keys back and stop fooling around, before she heard a momentary scream for just a second or two thereafter. But Maria couldn't see anything through the darkness. When Sarah played tennis with her friends, it was normal for her to get back home somewhere between 10.30 and quarter to 11.00. So when 11pm rolled by and she hadn't returned home, her parents Sheila and Peter and her brother Alistair became worried, as you would. They waited for a while, thinking perhaps she'd missed a train or there was a delay of some kind. This was pre-mobile phones back then, obviously. But when 1am came, it was obvious something wasn't right. That window of something innocent, like a delay or whatever, was closing and they hadn't heard from Sarah. She could have made it to a payphone by that time and let them know, so it was feeling very odd. Alastair, who was 21, a couple of years younger than Sarah, drove to Cannonook Station in time for the last train from the city to roll in. Obviously, he was hoping she'd got held up and was on it, but unfortunately she wasn't. Alastair located his sister's red Honda Civic in the car park, and he didn't see too much around it with the darkness and all, but he ascertained it was untouched, completely locked up. Unsure of his sister's whereabouts, he returned home and reported his findings to his parents. They thought it possible that Sarah had stayed over at a friend's house for the evening, so they no doubt had a sleepless night worrying about this, thinking it most likely and trying not to assume the worst. But unfortunately, the worst was to come the following morning when Sarah didn't show up at work. The McDermott's then spoke to Sarah's friends, Mike, Diana and Gavin, who she'd caught the train with, and they too had no idea as to her whereabouts. Shortly after 9am, the McDermott's reported Sarah missing to the local police. Local police then attended the Cannonook train station, where they located Sarah's car. Senior Constable Colin Clark later said in his statement to the coroner, I then approached the vehicle. As I did, I noticed what appeared to be a quantity of blood on the bitumen car park surface underneath the area of the driver's side of this Honda Civic, and further blood patches on the bitumen under a car parked adjacent to the driver's side of the Civic. 
This blood, although visible, appeared to have soaked into the bitumen surface. Without entering or touching the vehicle, I observed both doors appeared to be locked and there were no bags or clothing items in the vehicle. I then located a number of other blood spots on the bitumen surface and then followed them to a small area of vegetation and trees immediately to the western side of the car park, a short distance away. I saw further blood spots on the concrete gutter edging and on the grass surface leading to the bushes, I saw what appeared to be two parallel running drag marks that had slightly indented in the dirt. Senior Constable Clark continued, Immediately into the bush area, I observed further blood still in fluid form on wire meshing, which was lying on the ground, also some on the branches of bracken nearby. To the immediate right-hand side of this blood, I saw a green-coloured cigarette lighter lying also on the ground. The dirt and bracken in this area appeared to have been recently disturbed. It appeared to me from this evidence that a person who had started bleeding near the driver's side door of the Honda Civic had been carried or dragged into the bushes nearby. The blood on the ground was later forensically tested and determined to be Sarah's, and the cigarette lighter was traced back to a little cafe on Collins Place, not far from where Sarah worked at the insurance company. Police formed the belief that Sarah's body had been left on this ground in the bushes nearby for some time before being taken elsewhere. Searches of the nearby Cannonook Creek took place, along with sweeps of the beach, parklands and sewers, but no trace of Sarah was discovered. Police later conceded that some areas might have been missed in the search, things like industrial waste bins that were routinely emptied, that kind of thing, but at the time their efforts were substantial and other than what we mentioned at the scene, there were very few physical clues as to Sarah's whereabouts. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The first suspect, or suspects should I say, were noted by at least one of the aforementioned three witnesses, who reported there was a group of drunken males in the car park at Cannonook Station on the night of Sarah's disappearance. That in itself doesn't stand out, particularly around a train station and especially around Cannonook at this time. The area was known for rowdy drunken behaviour and also attracted drug users and other illicit activity. In the context of Sarah's disappearance and presumed murder, these guys were persons of interest. Unfortunately, they were never identified, with nothing but a loose witness statement of a few blokes in the dark. So we talked about the Tynong North Frankston murders a few weeks back, Chloe. These crimes occurring between 1980 and 81, and many hypothesised about the six victims being attributable to one serial killer. Others maintained the view, possibly, that 
the six victims may not all be linked necessarily, and there could be more victims to the series. But whatever the case there, Frankston would have its name dragged through the mud again only 12 or so years later, when another identified murder known as the Frankston serial killer terrorised the suburb over a five-month period in 1993, just a few years after Sarah's disappearance. Paul Charles Denya, now known as Paula Denya, murdered three young women in the Frankston vicinity during this time, in very close proximity to the Cannonook train station. They were 18-year-old Elizabeth Stevens, 22-year-old Deborah Freem, and 17-year-old Natalie Russell. Daniel was looked into for connections to Sarah's disappearance. He denied any involvement. He initially denied any involvement in the murders for which he was convicted too, until the physical evidence presented to him was overwhelming enough to elicit a confession. But in Sarah's case, there was no physical evidence. There were some noticeable differences in MO too. While Denya had stalked and snatched his victims off the street, he'd not taken their bodies elsewhere and seemingly made very little effort to conceal their bodies. They were all found nearby, essentially dumped in bush or parkland, partially covered with foliage. Denya was 21 at the time of these murders, 17 back when Sarah disappeared. And it seemed after a tense childhood, where he accused his brother of sexual assault, that Denya had escalated fairly quickly during this half-year spree. So again, it was odd that he'd commit this crime, then lay dormant for three years, before murdering in such a frequent and sloppy fashion. But he did live and operate nearby, and it's possible that he had unknown victims he simply hasn't confessed to because he hasn't had a solid enough case put before him. He did plead guilty to the three murders, and while he was sentenced to life without parole... An appeal lodged thereafter was successful and he had a non-parole of 30 years thereafter, meaning he'd technically be eligible in 2023. So that might be some incentive for Denya to keep her nose clean. I think it's unlikely Denya will ever see the light of day again and is probably a dark horse suspect in Sarah's disappearance. A few years later again and we'd see an all too familiar name surface as a potential suspect in Sarah's disappearance. Bandali Debs. Bandali is behind bars for life for his part in the 1998 murders of Sergeant Gary Silk and Senior Constable Rodney Miller, which we covered in our most recent episode. Had he been nabbed for this alone, he mightn't have surfaced as a suspect in this case, but as we know from the episode we did on Bandali before that, he was also convicted of the murders of Donna Hicks in 1995 and Christy Harty in 1997. His DNA was linked to these cases years after his conviction on the Silk Miller murders, effectively making him a serial killer and really opening up the possibility that he wasn't just a burglar shooting at police in the event he'd been caught, but that he really had an urge that could have ultimately been based on sexual pleasure. Debs was routinely questioned about his involvement in Sarah's disappearance. I'm not sure he was ever highly suspected as the MO didn't really match even that of Christy and Donna's cases, but again, it remains a possibility. Sarah's father, Peter, wrote a letter to Bandali in prison, begging him to confess in the hopes of getting some sort of closure if he was indeed involved. Bandali is never getting out, as we know, but he's also the kind of guy who wouldn't confess, I think, too. He's denied any involvement during police questioning, and he didn't respond to Peter's letter. 
The final suspect we're going to talk about is a person named Jody Jones. This was the first suspect the McDermott's were told about, and this was due to reports from a friend of Jones to police. Jones was a sex worker and also struggled with drug addiction, so this is potentially why she was in the area that night. And these reports came from a friend of Jones, as we said, and this friend stated that Jones had confessed to her and others that she and two other males were responsible for Sarah's murder in the days after her disappearance. One of these friends said that Jones had stayed at her apartment for a short time after Sarah disappeared. During this time, Jones allegedly confessed to being responsible, starting said confession with, You know that murder up at Cannonook Station? I was there with two other blokes and I'm worried because I don't know how staunch they are. This friend's 11-year-old daughter and an older flatmate named Paul, apparently, also overheard this conversation where Jones confessed. This young girl said in the weeks after Sarah's disappearance, I overheard a conversation between her and mum. Paul did too. We're in the lounge room, but we could hear them in the bedroom. I could hear Jodie say that she was in deep shit because she was in the Cannonhawk murder and that there were two other guys with her and she didn't know whether they would lag on her. I heard mum tell her that she didn't want any trouble and then Jodie asked for the $100 mum owed her because she wanted to go into state and mum said that she didn't have the money. The 11-year-old continued to say their voices were a bit raised. Then I went into mum's bedroom and Jodie sort of stopped talking a bit. Then Paul came in too and asked her to leave. She sat there for about two minutes on mum's bed and then she took her bag and stormed out. Other friends apparently told similar stories and gave similar statements to police. One even claimed to have witnessed the attack itself. This friend stated, As the train pulled away, I saw Jody and these two males follow a girl who was dressed in sporting gear. I watched these people for a while and I seen Jody and the two males start belting into that girl near the driver's side door of the car. I heard a female voice screamed as she was being attacked. Jody came screaming out from behind the car and the two males were following her. Jody was hysterical and I ran towards her. I then saw blood on Jody's clothes. Jody was screaming, she's dead, she's dead. I've not seen Jody since this happened. So there's quite a number of friends and people on the periphery who overheard these alleged confessions. So stood to reason that Jones was eventually arrested on the 23rd of July 1990 and interviewed at length. We're going to read a few bits of transcript of Jody Jones being questioned by former homicide detective Charlie Bazina to give you an idea of the attitude she took towards what might have happened to Sarah. Bazina. It's been alleged by a number of persons that you've told them you were involved in the death and stabbing of Sarah McDermott at the Cannonook Railway Station. What do you say to that? Jones, I don't know what they're on about. I don't know what they're trying to do. Do you agree that they have made statements to the police telling the police that you have, in fact, made admissions to them in relation to being involved in this? Do you agree with that? Yeah, but I don't agree with what they're saying. Can you offer any explanation why they, of their own free will, would make a statement to the police setting out these details and the conversations you have related to them? I know Leon and Queenie used to ring each other and I had a fight with Queenie over money. I don't know why, I wish I did. I also put it to you that you're involved in the disappearance and death of Sarah McDermott. What do you say to that? I'll put it to you that you're lying. 
Though Jones obviously denied any involvement in Sarah's disappearance and probable murder, it has certainly appeared she and these other two mystery blokes were strong suspects. Jody Jones had previously been convicted of manslaughter. In 1985, she was sentenced to 12 years in jail for killing a man by jumping off a wall onto the victim's chest while wearing stiletto heels. That's right, stiletto heels, onto his chest. That was just absolutely brutal when I read that. I think that is a terrifying sheer level of violence there, Chloe. It really is. So basic arithmetic probably has you asking, 12 years, 1985, Sarah disappeared in 1990, but was Jones out? Yes, that's right. She got early parole from her manslaughter conviction and she was indeed free when Sarah went missing, meaning she only served around five years, if that, for the stiletto killing. But Jody Jones's freedom wouldn't last for long. At age 26, just 14 months after Sarah's disappearance, Jones overdosed on heroin in the St Kilda motel room and died. Coming up to 30 years next year since Sarah disappeared, presumed murdered, the current reward for information leading to solving the case is at a million dollars. At the time, this was only the third crime in Australia to attract such a high reward. Two others were the murders of Jane Thurgood Dove in 1997 and Vicky Jacobs in 1999. Sarah's parents moved to Queensland at one point. They just couldn't stand to be in the same family home anymore. And that'd be a very difficult thing to do, wouldn't it? I think they've since moved back. I read two different reports that there'd been inquests as well into Sarah's presumed death, uh, 1996 and 2006. So whether there were two or those dates are wrong, either way, the coroner came to the conclusion that we already know. Sarah met her death as a result of foul play, the exact circumstances of which are unknown. Before we get into some speculation and our thoughts glow, I wanted to talk about the Sensing Murder episode on Sarah's disappearance entitled The Last Train Home, which aired on Channel 10 in September of 2004. We've mentioned this program before during the Tynong North Frankston Murders episode, and while it's an interesting program to watch for some of the facts, the premise in itself is one that crosses over into a generally unpopular area within the true crime community in that it's about psychics. Two psychics specifically, who have flown in from interstate, apparently told nothing about the case and given a trinket from the victim or a minute piece of information such as the birth date to work with. Again, as we said in that aforementioned episode, we are just putting this out there to tell the story in full. It's up to the individual to make of the psychic angle what they will. In this episode about Sarah's disappearance, they covered off many of the facts we've already run through a husky-voiced Rebecca Gibney guiding us through them before the psychics Debbie and Scott came into the fold. They both plucked out various little facts about Sarah and the location of where something had occurred before ending up in the location, one by driving and finding his way, the other by catching the train, 
which time they narrowed down their feelings to her either being abducted or killed in the car park of Cannonook Station. Both Debbie and Scott made their way through the details of Sarah's presumed attack, got off the train, went to her car, keys taken, attacked, snatched, potentially strangled, stabbed. Then they both mentioned a cream Holden Commodore, early 80s model with a rattly exhaust. And this is where the TV show of it all comes in. They red herring it for a while, leading you to think they're heading down the direction of Paul Denyer as prime suspect, but they eventually shy away from that, noting that they just felt his energy because of the other crimes and victims in the area. But the Cream Commodore was an interesting tidbit. So they both come around to not thinking it was Denyer, as you said, but a local gang of miscreants or druggies or what have you. They both mentioned a group or gang and a guy by the name of Ronnie, Ronald, Donnie or Donald. It was a woman associated too, but this guy was the main guy apparently. Their theory was that it was a random attack, wrong place at the wrong time, and these offenders were affected by drugs and or alcohol. Scott also said that a local guy named maybe Chucky, Baldy, Chalky or Charlie might know something about things. He might have seen something that night, which people had since heard him retell, but simply fobbed it off as just another story from this local ear basher. Scott also identified a spot on McClellan Drive, which was the site of an old disused tip or rubbish dump, the sort of place where back in the day anyone could just roll in and for $5 dump a trailer load of whatever they wanted, no questions asked, and the smell wouldn't have triggered either. He thought this area was actually riddled with bodies, many more victims than just Sarah, but he believed Sarah to be there. After the psychics did their thing, a team of private investigators then got to work on making some inquiries around the traps based on the psychics' findings. They spoke to a woman at the local Seaford RSL. She'd worked there for some 20 years apparently. And she mentioned a local drinker named Bertie who occasionally commented that he knew what happened to the girl at Cannonook that night in 1990. Bertie had since passed away. They also discovered at the time in 1990 that there was a nearby community correctional facility which had since relocated by 2004, so the offenders on parole question came up with this finding. The PIs then looked into the gang who used to frequent the area for drugs, specifically those associated with Jodie Jones. She apparently had an alibi for the night of Sarah's disappearance. She'd stayed at a friend's house. This friend, while they remain nameless, was tracked down by the investigators and they questioned her. They wanted to double-check this alibi. The friend couldn't be sure of the night, but one thing this friend said that caught the investigators' attention was the friend mentioning that Jones said to her the night she stayed over that she'd just been at Cannonook and the police were there. So this meant it was the night after, not the night of. So this discredited that alibi to some extent. They then tried to track down some of the other guys who'd been mentioned along the way. One was named Paul Hudsmith, known as Paul the Dwarf apparently. Turns out Hudsmith used to drive an old cream-coloured sedan of some kind. He also gassed himself some years earlier, so those inquiries ended right there. Apparently, there was another couple of guys associated with Jodie, one seen with her that night at the station. One of these guys was named Donnie, Another, who had the surname of Ratford, I recall, 
I don't think they located either of these guys as the information they had wasn't enough with privacy laws to really get anywhere. They did manage to locate an unidentified witness, however. This witness had apparently received threatening letters over the years. As a result, they refused to speak with the investigators either on or off the camera. The lead PI then went to this tip, this former dump, with Scott the psychic. He was convinced there were remains at the tip. The area hadn't been searched in 1990, apparently. Police surmised it too much of a needle in a haystack job at the time. Scott directed things to a specific northeast corner of the tip, which had closed in late 1990. Apparently, this area had been closed and Since then, there'd been some kind of methane collection system installed. If a body had been buried in 1990 at this location, it'd be 20 metres down, under concrete and waste, and too dangerous to excavate due to the aforementioned instability and methane. So that was that. Interesting information in parts, but again, nothing particularly solid to grasp onto. On the 10th anniversary of Sarah's disappearance, there was a flame tree planted in the Cannanook Station car park, and there's since been a memorial stone placed at the site too in Sarah's honour. This year, Sarah would have been 52 years old. It's been 29 years since her disappearance, and an undoubtedly harrowing time for her family and close friends. I think there are answers out there. Someone knows something. If you have any information about this case, about what happened to Sarah McDermott, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1-800-333-000 or report it at crimestoppersvic.com.au, anonymously if you wish. So my thoughts, I think probably the most likely scenario here was that this was an opportunistic crime that went bad, probably further than intended. If we go back to what we know, that Sarah presumably was heard asking for her keys back, it says to me that someone or someones took her keys They were probably going to take her car as well, and one or more of them took it too far in a subsequent attack and killed Sarah. Whether that was due to intoxication, drugs, or they had the thrill take hold of them once it started, it could be a combination of all of those things. Jody Jones and these other guys seem like the most likely culprits, but for whatever reason, there just wasn't enough physical evidence to get there. She was a proven violent person. These other guys, who knows, anecdotally we know of their drug use or association with that at least. It kind of makes sense why Sarah's body was then dragged and left in the scrub for a period while they panicked and thought about what to do and then left her car shifting their focus to what to do with her body. Sarah might have looked like she had money too wearing her sporting gear and carrying a tennis racket but put up a fight when they surrounded her the fiery Scott coming out at that moment, and one or more of them might have just gone too far. Debs and Denya, I don't like either of them for this crime personally. I can't see the MO or time frames lining up on either account. As for her body not being discovered, well, the rubbish dump is plausible, as is a body of water. I mean, the bay is nearby. It's very possible that any body dumped into Port Phillip Bay would just wind up undiscovered. The only other theory is that there was some kind of stalker or serial offender who specifically targeted Sarah. The only reason I keep an open mind on that is because of the lack of evidence found. There was some hypothesis in the reading around that being unlikely had it been some people on drugs or street thugs. You know, would they have done such a good job cleaning up the evidence and disposing of the body? Probably not. 
Whatever the case, it's incredibly sad for Peter, Sheila, Alastair, the extended McDermott family, and indeed her friends, particularly those who were with her that night. I think it'd be something that uh, would just never leave you, so my thoughts go out to all of them. I really feel like there's still someone out there who knows something more about this, despite the passage of time, and while Jones is dead, I think the police would have details of the other guys, whoever's not dead anyway. I haven't lost all hope on this one being solved one day, so fingers crossed. But uh, Your thoughts, Chloe? Yeah, this is definitely one of those cases where I think someone has to know something and I really hope something prompts them to come forward one day. I agree with you on the suspects. I think Jones is probably the best bet. And Debs in particular, he's far more soulless and callous than either of us thought if he could receive the plea from her father and then still not confess. Um, We've spoke about missing persons cases before and the toll they must take on families. And that's really all I can think about in this, that Her family and friends have gone 29 years not knowing what happened to her and essentially not getting any closure. I genuinely can't fathom living with that kind of thing and I just really hope that they do get some answers one day and do get that closure. Yeah, absolutely. But lightening the mood now, Chloe, we're on to your favourite little segment here at the end, the happy thoughts. Yes, so do you want to go first? Sure, yeah. Well, mine, um, as I've mentioned, we're... um, building a new house. So uh, my happy thought this week is buying a heap of new shit. <laughs> and I've written here, it sounds Yeah, really do you want to read the, um, <laughs> this is like not in the essence of happy thought, but do you want to read this comment that you've written? There's nothing like it, this is what I've written, nothing like it when the foul stench of consumerism <laughs> succeeds and you wilt to the pressure of society and buy a bunch of new shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's barely scraping through to happy thought, but if we just stick to the first bit, fine. <laughs> yeah, we got a we got a table today. It was pretty exciting. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice cool. one too. Yeah, I showed you a picture. So yeah. Um, yeah, that'd be cool. That's exciting. What's yours? Mine is dog related. So I have three dogs uh, and they're the best. And one of them has an ear infection at the moment and she needs drops, which isn't the happy thought. The happy thought is that every time I do it, my wolfhound cross, who is a 50 kilo baby, comes over and waits for his turn. And most times I pretend to give him drops too. So I make him sit and he holds his head out to the side and kind of trembles when I hold the tipper up to his ear doing nothing. And then after I'm done, he swallows really deeply and shakes his head like, oh, thank goodness that's over, even though nothing's (laughs) happened. So it's pretty funny. My whole family comes to watch now because we all know Milo's getting his medicine. So that's that's my happy thought that it's just hilarious. (laughs) Oh, that's great. (laughs) If you want to get in touch, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime Dash Podcast. And you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $5 per month, you'll get bonus episodes, case updates, debriefs, blooper reels, and much more to come. We have some case updates coming in a few weeks' time to finish out the year, which is going to be really good. And our latest Blue Label episode is out now on Corey Worthington and the catfishing of Casey Donovan. Yes. So very interesting. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us a lot and helps other people find the show as well. And that's it. That's it for another week, Chloe. Thank you and thank you to everyone for listening. We really appreciate it and we'll catch you all next time.
Thanks, everyone. I'm going to eat my cupcake I saved. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.